0: The future of education isn't fixed. It's made, one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of EDU Futures. Today, I have Kim Hamilton Duffy, architect of the Digital Credentials Consortium, a multi-university international effort designing the future of academic credentials in her role at MIT Open Learning. Her expertise is interoperable standards-based credentials and decentralized identity solutions. Now, you may not know what any of that means yet. And by the end of this interview, you may know a little bit more, but I'm not guaranteeing that you're going to understand it all. It's a fascinating conversation and it's a really important topic. And I hope you begin to discover that if this is new to you, if you have not been part of the digital credentials conversation, you'll get a brief introduction to it. If you've been a part of the conversation, you'll be invited into a few nuanced perspectives and some potential developments on their way. By the way, previously, uh, Kim co-created the successful open-source, open-standard block certs project with the MIT Media Lab. Kim is... A co-chair of the W3C Credentials Community Group, where she drives decentralized identity standards, uh, such as the Verifiable Credentials and Decentralized Identifier Specification. Again, some language you may or may not understand, but this is a critical topic. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring Kim on, she's really thoughtful about this. She's one of the people that, just as her title suggests, um, there's the work of an architect. When you build a house before you build it, of course, there's freeform building where you just kind of find materials and you build a structure just creatively and spontaneously, but that's not typically how things work in the world. Instead, you often have an architect and the architect is the one who's doing that behind the scenes design work and that planning. How do things go together? How do they work together? And what are the implications? What are the benefits and the limitations of different standards and different ways of building and creating this? And that's the level at which Kim is focusing now in this conversation today i invite her to talk on maybe more of the surface level for her in some ways or at least a different a different kind of level because i'm often approaching this topic from almost a philosophical lens or an ethical lens or even uh, times a pedagogical uh, or applied lens And uh, certainly Kim's work is definitely applied, but it's at a level that many people don't see. It's the -the behind-the-scenes decision-making and planning and designing that often shapes something like a a digital badge system or digital credentials and how we experience them in the world. So it's important to get behind the scenes and to get a glimpse of that world and that way of thinking. Kim is incredibly thoughtful. Actually, one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter, she has really interesting tweets that leave me pondering and thinking about things that... Uh, you, I don't usually think about whenever I see something as simple as a tweet. So without further ado, here is my interview with Kim. Kim, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: I was thinking about your title and your role, uh, Architect of the Digital Credentials Consortium. And uh, imagining that one doesn't typically grow up dreaming of becoming an architect of a digital credentials consortium. <laughs> uh, so i wonder there must be a little bit of a story about how you got here. And um, I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit about how you got into this current line of work.
1: So I think I did get in through the uh, blockchain angle, which um, has been kind of a, uh, how do you say Learning process, right? So I think a lot of people who get involved in in blockchain are interested in it. It's because it it combines uh, all your various interests that you never thought would uh, somehow come together. So for me, it was uh, you know math, algorithms, programming, distributed systems, and um, you know I I just love the uh, sort of combination, sim- simplicity of of the idea and what it could accomplish. Um, so I, I say that it's a it's a learning process, though, because um, when I started, it was I think uh, 2016, roughly. So I partnered um, via Learning Machine with the MIT Media Lab, uh, Philip Schmidt there, and I worked with him on an idea. So what he he wrote a paper about anchoring open badges to verify open badges via blockchain. And um, so that decentralized verification, our start of decentralized verification, was kind of a missing piece of the open badges ecosystem to allow portable learner credentials. Um, so so that was really, and uh, in, in we started the open source, open standard block certs project as a result of that. Now, um, the learning comes in because... You know, I think through that community, I grew into and sort of merged forces with a a lot of the broader decentralized credentialing groups through the W3C Credentials Community Group, Decentralized Identity Foundation. And we learned that a lot of other people were working on all the um, very nuanced problems that I was beating my head against the wall on um, in the... Context of open badges, um, so things like um, what do you want to put into a badge? Um, things around personally identifiable information, the GDPR framework, or the um, in, which uh, might give the the recipient or the learner the right to be forgotten or delete something. Is the blockchain de- inherently uh, working against that? So there are a lot of a lot of issues coming up around privacy. And, and control over uh, that, that a learner has over their credentials. So um, the Digital Credentials Consortium, we started because it's sort of building on a lot of those efforts. So I'm now co-chair of the W3C Credentials Community Group and um, there, there's just a lot of work to do in these decentralized architectures. You know, there are there are areas pilots that that people can get started on right now, but there are a lot of uh, problems that we need to really sort out before, um, you know, you could start using these in a broader range of of use cases. So the idea behind the Digital Credentials Consortium. MIT um, and, and the other universities, Harvard, and, and we have some in Europe, uh, TU Delft, for example, TUM in Munich. So we have 12 total. And, and we had all been experimenting with our kind of small pilots, but with fairly low stakes credentials, the kinds of things that people would want to advertise on LinkedIn. So that's really the the sort of boundary that that is uh, critical, right? So it's the, what would you want to advertise about yourself versus, um, you know, what's something that might contain more uh, personally identifiable information? So um, we wanted to work together to really work, also on behalf of, behalf of the learner or recipient, um, because the tooling to support use of decentralized credentials, you know, for the learner, were, we're really missing. So we thought we can help provide some, um, you know, f- some clarity in a lot of these areas. Technically, regulatory, we can push for, um, you know, sort of more details about. How what it would be like for a learner to actually use these systems with uh, use these credentials with their university systems, um, and then and then also pushing for the standards and tools that we know need to be there to help the recipient really use these as portable credentials. So yeah, it's been a long path here. I feel that it's a very nice opportunity, you know, working as part of of 12 universities who have their learners' interest in mind, uh, to really advocate for that side of the system to make sure that what we're building really works for learners.
0: And this conversation for micro-credentials or digital credentials or sometimes digital badges in the early early days, it seems like people are shying away from that because of maybe the negative stigma that people associate with a, a badge they can't get Boy Scout badges out of their head still it seems <laughs> um, it, it uh, this is I mean this is this is a relatively new uh, movement I mean less than a decade really but there's been a, a lot of work happening and and the kinds of things that you're talking about and doing are incredibly uh, new, I mean, compared to sort of the earlier conversations, but I'd like to maybe even step back a little bit more for the sake of the listeners who maybe are hearing about these this notion, uh, this alternative perspective on credentials for the first time. And I think of Neil Postman, a media ecologist, uh, he's helped kind of start the first media ecology PG, PhD program at NYU years ago, um, was at Columbia uh, Teachers College. And he once told the story of going to a car dealership to buy a new car. And the salesperson was emphasizing the incredible feature of this new car. This was his sales pitch, that it had something called cruise control. Um, To which Neil, kind of an old school media ecologist who was all focused upon studying affordances and limitations of technologies, responded to the salesperson, what is the problem to which cruise control is the solution? <laughs> yes. And um, and then the, the person realized, uh, probably never having been asked that question, said, well, I suppose it's so your foot doesn't get tired pushing down the pedal. And of course, Neil responded, well, you know, I've, I've never had that problem and I've been driving for 30 <laughs> something years. Um, so I, that that leads me to pose that question for this whole conversation. What is the problem or what are the problems to which these credentials um, are we aspire to to offering a solution? What's the problem with the current credentialing system?
1: Yes. So that's a great point. And it's something that people need to continue asking. Um, I think the thing is, um, you know, a lot of times in the space, people get so excited by the opportunities and the things that you can build versus Asking the question of what it's solving, so um, I'll start with the the simplest one, and then move on to some uh, slightly more nuanced, um, you know, kind of new territories of um, of credentialing and and recognition for skills. So the most basic problem we wanted to solve with open badges is the problem of verification. So um, at the time, the primary method of verification of of badges for for skills, uh, course completion, etc., was called um, hosted verification. Meaning, um, you get a URL, but the issuer or some trusted party that uh, of the issuer. Um, you know, is responsible for storing that content, meaning, you know, if they weren't careful, if, if they, um, you know, took your credential offline for some reason or just didn't make that guarantee that it would be available, then you could no longer access it. So, um, and there's, there's, there's a range of the kind of long-term stewardship, but then also shorter term, you know, technical limitations. What if their site is not reliable, things like that. Um, so the the sort of the longevity and availability of the credentials was was a key aspect but then what that also touches on um, that people were noticing now this is apparently um, unusual for non u s audiences, but we were concerned about issuers at colleges going out of business um, one of my fellow co-chairs at at the credentials community group, he has a, a job, a, a history, job in his history that, um, you know, the the college that he was teaching at went out of business. So he can't provide good verification for his records during that time. So the other aspect of longevity and independence of the issuer, um, that was something that was critical for letting people really control their credentials and um, have them associated with them over life, over their lifetime. Um, I think that the other aspect, I thought it was interesting what you said about badges, um, you know, whether it's associated with, you know, a a perception of lower stakes credentials. I think the thing is that we're also along, working along with the effort to recognize non-traditional skills. So uh, right now, the most common method in the U.S. of, you know, getting any sort of recognition for your education is, you know, you complete a, a tiered program or a four-year degree or some kind of employment certification. But um, you know, there's a lot of F, uh, emphasis p- placed on this four-year degree, right? And you took a whole bunch of courses before even getting there. So um, you know, it, but if you managed, if you for some reason have to drop out before the four years are up, then it's like you didn't get anything. There's no way to really show or demonstrate your mastery of various subjects. And this is one aspect that touches on you know, kind of the perceived lack of value in, um, you know, these sort of non-traditional claims. So, right now, um, you know, still a lot of the way higher education verification works is very, um, you know, a lot of overhead, whether you're contacting a registrar's office, something like that, to the point that people actually don't do it. Um, so, you know, in if there were a way to provide verification of These, you know, not only university credentials, but if you could use the same kind of infrastructure to establish trust in, um, you know, smaller credentials or skills or recognition that, you know, for these behaviors like, say, you don't necessarily you know, produce the most line of codes code as a programmer, but you're very helpful. You're good at at design, architecture, all of this kind of stuff. Um, you can get these represent these kind of skills and work those into your broader portfolio. Um, so I think that what we're trying to do as well is also include uh, um, the the hooks so that people can start expressing these um, other skills that they pick up in their life so that they can use them when they're applying for job opportunities and things like that. The idea of opening opportunities for people with um, non-traditional backgrounds is huge, Um, allowing ways for learners and um, workers to show potential employers, yes, I, I may not have this degree, but I'm capable of doing those
0: skills yeah. Uh, I think that in some of the er- the early years of badges, not the first year or two, I wasn't engaged. But after that, I got quite engaged. I think I I may have written more than anyone else in terms of informal articles at the time. I've written over 100 articles, I think, around different perspectives on micro-credentials and, and badges, mostly like blog posts and things like that, nothing peer-reviewed. And um, I found myself getting a little bit disenfranchised. I actually disengaged from the community altogether a number of years ago, a couple of years ago, um, tied to... Maybe some philosophical uh, differences in terms of who would govern and govern or determine <laughs> um, right. uh, where badges are going, <laughs> and right. um, uh, and one of the things though that intrigued me was, was this notion that badges might be more than um, a credential and more than than a form of verification, but also a form of connection. Um, A form of discovering one another, uh, organization to person, person to person, whatever else it might be, and uh, the sort of the possibilities of uh, um, metadata within badges, um, allowing for systems that can be uh, mined, almost like uh, uh, dating services or or things like that. I'm wondering um, sort of where that fits into your work and your thinking about badges and sort of how we design them next generation. Sorry, or credentials. My apologies.
1: Right. Oh, th- no worry. I, I think for um, our purposes, we can use them roughly. <laughs> in a right. Um, yeah. So, definitely a huge benefit of machine readable credentials, um, you know, versus, say, a PDF um, or, you know, some, some other kind of uh, uh, file that you can't really, that a machine can't look at and in, in, in extract data from it. With machine readability, you can do things like you're mentioning. You can have the equivalent of tags, um, you know, to, to flag something, cluster it. Um, but you can also have richer vocabularies and taxonomies. Um, there are examples in various areas. So, um, for example, in the U.S. There is the Credential Engine Registry that's funded by the Lumina Foundation in Europe. There's the European Qualification Framework. So the nice thing about that is it lets uh, people at least agree on what are the, you know, how do you represent this skill? What are different levels of mastery? And, um, you know, in terms of, of connecting, it's, it's sort of that, I'm describing sort of the, you um, the most raw or sort of the um, most machine oriented way of saying, you know, it lets you more easily say this person has that skill and maybe they picked it up in the military, um, whereas someone else picked it up in the workplace. But it lets you start to reason about, yeah, that's the same thing. Um, there's there's a much broader form of connection that 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 enables, and a lot of work, at least in the U.S. from from my understanding, a lot of work is happening through the T3 Innovation Network to figure out how will people discover this, how will it be, you know, how will le- learners or workers interact with these systems? Because um, we also want to, in contrast to how. Uh, a lot of other systems are built around our personal data. We want to try to get it right. We want to try to be more responsible. So um, what are the incentives for for participants in the system? What are the risks? Um, you know, what if they they don't want to participate in these systems anymore? Um, so what we're trying to do by working together through all of these its a combination of you know, Digital Credentials Consortium ha- has goals like that in mind. T3 Innovation Network does, and all uh, various standards organizations in the space. We're really trying to focus on how can we how can we make how can we get the best of both worlds? How can we get discoverability, but then also privacy and control? And these are always questions of trade offs. We just want to make sure we have as much of the dials that we need.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I want to dive into sort of the, some of the work you're doing behind the scenes. I think that there's although there's a lot of incredible and important nuanced thinking that's, that's informing what people think about on the surface. But historically speaking, as I, I've spent a little time sort of studying the history of credentials, and um, I have one of those those books that's uh, three quarters written that may or m- may uh, may never be seen, um, <laughs> uh, tentatively <laughs> called The Lincoln Test, based upon the idea that Lincoln was never a credential credentialed in the in the traditional way but was a practicing lawyer um and um and so i I, if we study the history of credentials we know that before for example the letter grade system or uh, even the issuing of diplomas students would go to harvard and they wouldn't even get a diploma at the end if one wanted a diploma they would have to go have some kind of um uh, uh the the equivalent of the time of a graphic designer essentially create a uh, document or a diploma, and then they would go and they would pay the president of the college uh, to sign it. And this would be some kind of um, signifier of their accomplishments or their qualification, which is obviously following from the prior tradition of letters of reference, which preceded uh, which preceded that and then obviously then we got to the point where um, eventually people started using this shorthand uh, letter grades and um, and then um, eventually creating uh, simple kinds of transcripts and then uh, jumping ahead very quickly to sort of the digitizing of these transcripts but all along the way and in all of this the the um, well actually at, at one point at the beginning stage It was the learner who really had the responsibility of managing and holding on to a collection of these different credentials or forms of verification. And then it moved over to the organization and the modern day registrar's office. Um, And now it seems to me that in this current conversation, we're looking at some ways to decentralize that. And that's what you talked about a little bit before. And I'm wondering if we can't dive into that a a bit. How does this notion of your work around um, decentralized identifiers contribute to new affordances or new possibilities?
1: That's really interesting history because... um, you know, to some extent that, that phase where you're describing where the learners are really in control of keeping the records. I think that's what we're hoping to build and support. Um, I think there, there there's several things that, that we're facing. Um, you know, like you said, now it is generally the issuer's responsibility. And, and for example, when we started looking into, uh, the relevant regulatory frameworks, FERPA, for example, in the U.S., it's written for basically the issuing institution, which is really interesting. It's about how how they deal with the learners' uh, records. So, you know, these methods are sort of opening up a new angle on it. So, I think that. That's one. That's one really interesting angle. I think, given that we're working primarily, um, you know, we're trying to enable digital records, a whole lot of new issues come up with that. So, say, um, and this is where it ties in with decentralized identifiers. So, another problem that came up with open badges in the earlier phases: a recipient was typically identified in the credential by an email address or some other kind of of information meaning that um you know there was it was it was hard to really know that this credential is about that person like our processes weren't adapted to really deal with the idea of um a learner being able to show yes that credential is about me so um you know a lot of the the sort of if, If you think about naively through cryptography, public-private key cryptography, there's an answer, but, you know, so you can, if you can say in the credential, the person who proves control over this public key can sign something saying that they own it, but we all know that you don't want to ask people to uh, control their cryptographic keys. It's uh, much more challenging than keeping all your passwords underway, Um, so, so, that's partially where the concept of decentralized identifiers came in. So, um, decentralized identifiers are, you can think of them as just a, a string, but they're this, like your, Social security number, except that's a really bad example because so imagine if you could prove that that was your social security number. So it's harder for people to go um, steal your identity by saying, okay, here's this. I know this social security number and this address. Um, instead, you're able to, to prove that's about you. So decentralized identifiers are trying to enable that, but with the complexities that, that come up with recognizing that. You know, cryptographic key control for an individual is very hard. Um, so, so in in the the equivalent of open badges, um, you know, say you, you you don't want to if if you had a public key in there, you wouldn't want to accidentally lose control over your, your educational record if you just lost control of your private keys. Um, you know, yeah, maybe you could go re-request your credentials, but that's a difficult workflow. So decentralized identifiers are trying to solve problems like that. How do you let people, you know, uh, rotate and, um, you know, sort of regain control over these identifiers? How do you let them, um, you know, choose the level, as we call it, the level of uh, celebrity or anonymity that we want? So maybe you want to group a persona and credentials associated with your persona in one way in one context but then a different way in another context and so the, these are the sorts of problems that decentralized identifiers are trying to solve that's now in a w3c working group phase and yeah work very much underway a lot of prototypes around that as well
0: yeah that's really intriguing work to me this this notion of identity management more broadly And um, I'm wondering in that work group, uh, it's to what extent is it being informed by the perspective of different stakeholders? So the perspective of, for example, in this case, the university, uh, if we're thinking about education or the the school uh, versus the sort of perspectives of the learner or the um, recipient, or uh, I'm not sure if that's even – they may not necessarily be a recipient, but uh, um, right. you know, how do you, how are you, how is your work being informed by the different stakeholders?
1: Yeah. So the the W three C working groups those are those are generally a phase of um, this is uh, not to dodge the question. So it keeps it, sure. very much. <laughs> implementers. And so there is some coverage, say, you know, by virtue of your affiliation with academic institutions, like like me, for example, there is some coverage, but I wouldn't say it's necessarily great coverage. So in general, it's addressed in, in the following ways. So there are a lot of decentralized identity groups with different audiences to say the internet identity workshop um, ideas around essentialized identity identifiers have been incubating there for many years. And so that pulls in a broader set of uh, stakeholders. There's rebooting web of trust, which is similar, but a, a slightly more, um, you know, that one's more of a workshop where people might actually go and start working on specs, working on, um, you know, prototypes and then in the credentials community group, which is, um, you know, open open to the public, I think it's a, a good, and this is partially the reason for the, the digital credentials consortium. So even though we're not, so we're, we consist of the universities and um, you kind of have to take my word for it that the universities really do have their learners uh, interest in mind, which, you know, I think that that's something that is, is a nice aspect of working with university issuers as opposed to a lot of other ones who may not be thinking about the learner's um, long-term interest. So I think that it's... I wouldn't say that in general... I would say in general around these standards, I would like us to have better ways to ensure we're meeting the needs of the communities that we're serving. I do think there's a weakness now. And I think it's largely that you have a lot of people building decentralized identity systems. I call it at the commu- communities they are trying to serve right. versus for them. And so that's really um, the unique opportunity that I felt. And the reason that, um, you know, I never expected to, to be working for a university. Um, MIT is different. They move. Uh, I, I always expected it would move uh, slowly at a university, MIT. They they like to move more quickly, but um, I like the idea that it also gave the freedom to um, you know be a little bit more intentional and you know less focused on um, you know sort of the profit angle exclusively. Um, you know you do need to worry about sustainability in any system and how that happens, but I like that at least for a group like this, our interests were. Aligned with with the students. Now, we as a community need to be going much farther because this is a, uh, you know, this is just one example. This is educational credentials. What about people who are, you know, building identity systems for refugees? So I know a lot of these do have the uh, their target audience. You know, their p- target populations interest very much in mind. It's very um, personal work for them, but. But unless you have these recipients actively involved in the process, you're just going to get it wrong, basically. And, and you need to make sure you're not just dumping these solutions that are um, only partially thought through.
0: That makes that makes good sense. It seems to me that, obviously, as you just mentioned, the example of uh, of um, a refugee context, that there are all sorts of contexts for the use of credentials that are outside of academia. And in recent history, even in the marketing of many uh, colleges today, that there there's conversation about. Uh, the selling point is the credential, <laughs> right? right? That you get this degree. Um, and, um, and so as such, there is obviously uh, a sense of um, risk for a university to think about supporting a system or an, an infrastructure um, whereby uh, the issuing and owning of credentials is, is largely democratized.
1: Right, right. And that's certainly a, a, it's definitely a a different way of doing things. Um, I think because it's such a new area, that was another um, reason for working together. So, you know, There are F, different countries are approaching it differently, I guess. So in Europe, you see a lot of efforts for some sort of common blockchain infrastructure that um, universities think of as like, okay, this is a, a service I can use. Um, in the U.S., we don't really have anything that's equivalent, and we do want it to be sustainable. Um, we do want it, you know, we want learners to be able to use uh, these credentials in their in their life, in their education and in employment. And so one thing that we're very committed to is partnering with uh, companies, but um, defining the standards that are critical so that that learners can really use their credentials across systems. So they're not locked into one vendor or another. So, um, so yes, it's a, it's, it's a big, it's very um Ambitious, I think what we're hoping is that we can be on the side of, you know, just ahead of, of the standards that need to be developed so that we can really advocate for the hooks that we feel a learner needs, that the issuer needs to, um, you know, because an issuer might have a, wh- a whole lot of concerns about what could go wrong. Um, is it easier to commit fraud? Uh, things like that. So they are very, um, you know, Difficult answers to all of these, and and these are all very important to, you know, work through carefully as we go forward.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Really fascinating work that you're doing. We're already at the end of our time. And I have to say, I, I should have started with this. But of course, before interviewing someone, I have to look them up online and read about other things they've written. And I found my myself at Twitter. And uh, so as we finish up, I have to mention you, you have one of the, you're one of the more interesting people to follow on Twitter. <laughs> Thank you. They're wonderfully thoughtful tweets. And the, for example, the last one that I saw was, uh, it's okay to play the Monty Hall problem with the goal of increasing the number of goats in your life. <laughs> um So I don't know if our listeners may or may not understand sort of the Stephen uh, Selvin, 1975, this whole game show scenario that you're given the choice of uh, three doors, behind one door is a car, the other door goats, and you pick a door, um, say number one, and then the host uh, um, who knows what's behind the doors opens another door, um, uh, maybe uh, door number two, uh, which has a goat, then um, he says to you, do you know, um, uh, do you want to pick the other door or you can change your mind, right? I'm sorry, I'm just for the sake of the audience. <laughs> Terrible right. explanation, by the way. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, and and most people assume that statistically or just intuitively that you would stay with the same door, your chances are the same. But but obviously, um, Selvin uh, proved that changing your mind uh, actually increases your chances, right? So all of that... Is evoked from a single tweet for me, right? You just take me on this whole mental journey of that. Um, so fascinating.
1: It's okay to want more goats in your life. Yes. That's right. That's I'm, right. Often, I'm often told my sense of humor is subtle to the point of non-existence. So thank you for bearing through that. That's right.
0: And for the sake of those who can't see this, there was actually a little goat in the tweet as well. So that was a nice touch. That's right, <laughs> <laughs> Kim. Thank you so much. I appreciate the work that you're doing, and it is fascinating, really important. As you can tell, I obviously come from a bit of a philosophical uh, perspective on this, with asking some ethical and the- um, maybe theoretical questions as well. Um, and yet, I realize that the the way in which those ethical implications are going to be played out is at the level of the work that you're doing on a daily basis with this. So, I'm grateful for that.
1: Thank you very much. It was great to join you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote, You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edufutures.